Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Sasha Baron Cohen is in the house today. He has created some of the most unforgettable and hilarious characters of the modern age. From Ali G to Borat to Bruno, you know them all. His comedy is fearless and uncomfortable. He's put politics and power on the spot, exposed prejudice, and made us all wonder if he's going to get out of some of these situations alive. His new limited series is called The Spy. Set in the 1960s, it's the true story of Israeli clerk turned Mossad secret agent Ellie Cohen. It's the first time he's played a real-life character, and his performance is extraordinary, but not surprising if you think about the level of commitment he gives all his characters. This one just happens to be real. Over the course of his career, Sasha has always avoided the press. And if he did do interviews, it was always as Ali G or Borat or Bruno. This was certainly the case at Vanity Fair when we tried to get him several times for the magazine, but he would only do it in character. So it makes this interview even more special. Settle in because I am thrilled to bring you this conversation with a true original. Let's talk about the fact that during the course of your career, you have never, ever really engaged with the press in any kind of traditional manner. Yes, it upset a lot of journalists along the way. I, in fact, I remember, so I started off on a show called The 11 O'Clock Show in England. I started doing this character, Ali G., and they interviewed everyone from the show, and I refused to give an interview. And the interviewer from the Sunday Times said, the arrogance of this complete <laughs> unknown... I think he put my name as Ali, because I don't think he'd actually done his research and found out... And you were young, real, right? You're, that was your first I thing. was 27. And I refused to promote the show, and I refused to actually have any photos of myself out. And the reason wasn't huge ego which obviously I have but I realized that the work was more important than the publicity or the success of the show that if somebody recognized my face as Ali G then I sat down with them they'd go all right you're the comedian from the 11 o'clock show so I refused to do any press as a result no one really knew that Ali G was not a person was not a human being um, and then a few months later, people put two and two together, worked out that actually Ali G's real name is Sasha Baron Cohen. And I'm not actually the same ethnicity as what they thought Ali G was. That ended up being mm -hmm. a scandal. Then the Sun newspaper printed a photo of me. It ended up actually being a photo of the person who lived in the apartment opposite me, who happened <laughs> to leave the apartment wearing sunglasses and a hat. And just coincidental. Just that was a coincidence, not anything yeah, he left manipulated. The, yeah, okay. I didn't know. I didn't. Yeah. At that time, I was yeah. not that devious. 
But it was great for me because I remember, so Ali G ended up doing much better than anyone would have imagined, particularly me. And they were selling the Ali G video. And at that time, I started shooting Borat. And I went to HMV, which was the biggest uh, music and DVD or video uh, shop in the country. And I remember standing next to the Ali G stand, dressed as Borat. And all the fans of Ali G were around. They go, oh, yeah, this is it. And I'm standing there. They had no idea that I was the person they were buying. And for me, that was really enjoyable. I loved being able to go on the tube in England and hear people talk about the show. Do you think you would have had the same level of success with Bruno, Borat, Ali G? It came in the 90s, right? So there was no social media, there was no Twitter, there was no camera phones everywhere. Do you think that the era in which they were born had anything to do with their success, like if you started it now? I think it's... My success and the speed of my sort of rise to fame in England was completely conditional on changes in technology at the time. So two different things. One, the sort of proliferation of pirate radio at that point in England. So Ali G went on air. I think it was on a Thursday night. And the next morning, all the pirate radio shows were talking about Ali G. Because it was the first comic character that, let me put it this way, it was sort of the first non-white comic character. And obviously there had been sort of Afro-Caribbean characters mm-hmm. beforehand. And again, you know, there's that debate over what is the actual ethnicity of Ali G. But the beauty was, because I hadn't actually done any interviews, that there were a lot of different ethnic communities that were claiming Ali G for themselves. They were saying, you know... The Greeks were saying, oh, he's Greek. Some of the Afro-Caribbean community were saying, oh, he's one of us. Mm -hmm. You know, actually, the Jews weren't claiming me at the time. (laughs) So there was a proliferation of pirate radio stations, which had existed, but these government had kind of allowed them to sort of proliferate at the time. And the second thing was it was the beginning of really the internet and email sharing. So people could attach clips And these clips were um, short enough that they could attach them to an email. And so people were rapidly able to share Ali G clips. So the beginning of of the internet was actually really important. The beginning of the mass internet Mm -hmm. was really important for the quick rise of Ali G. You know, we see how when the technology changes, different groups of people suddenly become important. We now have influencers those people would never have been influencers in the age of just TV. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, comedians and film stars were just, you know, stage performers before the advent of film. So I think the developments of technology and the um, ability of some people to break through are completely connected. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of amazing with the level of technology we live in now that you were able to do Who is America? Which, congratulations, by the way, on the Emmy nomination and just on the series in general. Thank you. Uh, which is still makes it shocking that you're able to get away with that, you know, just be able to completely transform. Yes, I was terrified, actually, at the beginning. I mean, we promised Showtime just one half-hour show because we thought it's going to be impossible to actually shoot anything more than that. And then it started going well, and in the end, we delivered seven. So I was really surprised that we could get away with that. 
I want to talk about fear, obviously in relation to the spy, but also in the work you did in Who is America, specifically the episode where you go to Arizona and you petition that small community to build a giant mosque. Have you ever wanted to break character for fear of your own life? To me, that felt like potentially the scariest situation. Well, I think it's more dangerous to break character because if people think that you're actually mocking them, then that's when they can get to be really violent. So during Ball Rat, there were some people in the crowd that realized that I was an actor pretending Mm. to be a Kazakhstani, and then that situation almost turned violent. So breaking character isn't really an option. It can exacerbate Mm -hmm. tensions. Um, But, I mean, in that situation, yeah, it was scary because, you know, we try to take as many weapons of people as possible, but people can still sneak in knives and there are kind of smaller guns you can bring in. And also people had guns in their cars, so the aim was to try and stop them going to their cars and bringing guns back. One guy actually said to me, he goes, now I... I think I actually made it into the show. He said, now I know why you stopped mm-hmm. us bringing in our weapons. I go, why? Because we would have used them. Mm-hmm. And actually, I had quite a good, like, I was extremely argumentative with me. But in the end, he came up to me. He said, he goes, you know what? I respect you. And I was in character. And I, mm-hmm. I go, why? He goes, you've got balls. He goes, to come in here and to try and, you know, sell us on the idea of doing that mask, you've got balls. And I respect you for that. So it's a weird... Uh, a weird um, feeling of kind of respect from this from this guy who I thought wanted to kill me. He did actually want to kill me. Mm-hmm. This was the first time where somebody had actually said on camera, I am racist. So somebody says on camera, I am racist against Muslims. So that was quite shocking to hear. Mm-hmm. When I was shooting some of the earlier mu- movies and TV shows... If somebody had revealed their racism, it would be quite shocking and it would almost definitely make it into the show or the movie. Mm -hmm. But for somebody to actually say publicly, and there were cameras present, I am racist, shows how far the political culture has moved. You know, the, the fact that the president is outwardly racist allows some people to go obviously far more extreme and to feel emboldened and happy to express it on camera, which never would have happened. So it's a, it's a completely different political culture out there. So by witnessing it, and obviously firsthand, are you surprised that we're where we're at right now in terms of the politically di- divided climate? Am I surprised? Well, okay, so the caveat is I'm a comedian, I'm an actor. Yeah. It's best to ask these questions of uh, political theorists and philosophers. But I think... You know, we were talking about the importance of technology in my career. Mm-hmm. I think technology has had a huge impact on society. So we live in an age now, and we saw it this week, where conspiracy theories can spread. You know, the you know it's got to the stage where a president can even spread conspiracy theories knowing that they are conspiracy theories. And because there's no control over how information is dispersed... Conspiracy theories can spread like wildfire and it's impossible as a, for most citizens to know the difference between a conspiracy theory and what's truth. That was something that I did in Who's America. I wanted to look into the 
power and the respect given to conspiracy theorists. So I came up with a character called Billy Wayne. Mm -hmm. And the sad thing is, given the modern world, that people will sit down with conspiracy theorists who are talking complete nonsense and give them the respect that they would do sitting down with someone like you mm -hmm. or somebody from, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times mm -hmm. or the London Times or whatever, you know, the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, whoever respected newspaper. So because the internet doesn't differentiate between what's fact and what's fiction, it allows these people to have the same influence. In fact, they actually have more influence than the truth. So an interesting statistic is that YouTube suggested an Alex Jones video seven billion times, not million, seven billion times. And that's because conspiracies are a lot more engaging than the truth, which is nuanced and can be quite boring. It's much more interesting to find out that Muslims are going to destroy your country and take away your jobs. And, you know, throughout history, you used to have the sort of ruling power was in control of the spread of information. So you had, you know, the tribal leaders, the church, the religious leaders, the nation state. And now you have companies are in control mm -hmm. of the way information is dispersed and their modus operandi and their business model is actually to have no control over it. And so it's driven by whatever gets the most viewership and makes them the most money. So it's in their interest to spread lies and spread conspiracy theories because then their share price goes up and more people are using their platform. And you're right, it's entertaining. And it's entertaining. Lies and um, conspiracy theories and propaganda are far more entertaining than the truth. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about The Spy, which brings me to that, actually, because as a someone that's viewing and experiencing pop culture as it happens and with my years at Vanity Fair, you always seem to be right on the zeitgeist of what was happening. So I look at the spy and I'm like, oh, this is so interesting. Your choices are very deliberate. What is it about this story telling it now? Because it takes place about, you know, for listeners that haven't seen it yet, it's about as the first really Israeli spy you know, gets recruited in the 50s and really worked during that sweet spot of like basically 61 to 65 before he um, met his demise. But what was it that drew you to portraying him and why now? So a couple of reasons. The first one was that um, I grew up in a house in London and on the bookshelf, one of the books that was there that my dad had bought was Our Man in Damascus. I've actually got the copy here. And I'd always seen it on the bookshelf, you know, in the way that you grow up and you look at the shelves, you don't necessarily read them. Uh, and then my dad passed away a few years ago, and then this opportunity came. And th there had been movies about Ellie Cohen that had been brought to me beforehand, and I was never really interested in them. And then I read actually my dad's copy of the book and that may have been the kind of deep rooted thing that pushed me into actually doing something out of my comfort zone the second thing was a deep interest in syria and the effect of syria in the world now so what we see 
during this series is the beginning of the bath party and their ability and their um, successful sort of coup in Syria. Um, and that changed Syrian history and I would argue it changed world history. So, you know, Bashar al-Assad, who's the president now, his father was Hafez al-Assad. When Eli Cohen was in Syria at the time, Hafez al-Assad became the head of the air force. After Eli's demise, he became the defense minister and obviously mm -hmm. became the president. So the Ba'ath Party is still in control. They were vicious at the time. There's a scene where they slit the throats of everyone in power at that time. And the success of the Ba'ath Party actually, I would argue, transformed Syria and transformed Europe. You know, so the viciousness and murderous instincts that are evident throughout that party's um, rule led to the biggest refugee crisis since World War II. Millions of Syrian refugees mm -hmm. moving out of Syria. It also led to the formation of ISIS, Islamic State, in Syria and to the export of terrorism to Europe, uh, which then in turn led to, you know, was, was a major reason behind the rise of these nationalist movements in Europe and even was a contributing factor to Brexit. So it's interesting to see here the roots of this political change, this regime change that ends up having devastating consequences throughout the world that we live in now. And the character, you're, you have to be him. You, you have yeah. to transform into him. And obviously you've transformed into your other fictitious characters, but this is a real-life character. So did you... Is the mythology different when you're approaching? Um, it's not completely different. I mean, so, you know, there's only so much we know about him. You know, there's stuff that we know through the family. There are two books written about him. You know, obviously I read the books, saw the documentaries there about him, but there's very, there's no footage of him per se. There's some stuff from the show trial, but obviously there's nothing of him mm -hmm. while he was actually undercover. There are a couple of photos of him on the in the Golan Heights that Syrian generals mm -hmm. had taken. You know, I wanted to make sure that I was creating a character that the family would find authentic. And I was very happy today to find out that the children were really mm -hmm. excited to see the first images of their dad. Although his wife apparently said that I'm a little bit slimmer than her husband. <laughs> but, um, but yes, I mean, there's a lot of character work. So... You know, so let's start with the dialect. The first way into any character for me is the dialect. So this guy was a Jew who grew up in Egypt who then emigrated to Israel. So the first dialect I learned was Egyptian. And then the second dialect I learned was Syrian Arabic, which in itself is pretty hard to find a dialect coach who knows the difference. And in the end, I found somebody, a brilliant dialect coach in Morocco, who was an expert on both. He'd lived in Syria and he'd actually was a brilliant actor, played uh, Egyptians as well. Mm -hmm. And so that was a kind of way in. And I always, even I knew even if the audience didn't really sense the difference, 
it was a way for me to distinguish between Ellie, the Israeli, the poor Sephardi mm-hmm. Israeli, and Kamel, the multimillionaire uh, Argentinian Syrian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was obviously, you know, the changes in posture and, you know, how he walked. So the difference between a guy who's working as a deputy accountant in a supermarket would then, you know, the t- it was actually actually an amazing story if you think about it. The Mossad mm-hmm. chooses a guy who's an accountant in a supermarket mm-hmm. to send as their sole guy into Syria mm-hmm. to go undercover as a multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. It's like going to Trader Joe's here and yeah. going going to one of the sellers there and going, you know, okay, we want to put you undercover as a billionaire in Saudi Arabia now. You're going to land on a yacht and yes. go. It's a crazy yeah. story. But it's also, it's a thriller too. I mean, yeah. it's, I, it manages to be a spy thriller in every, yes. you know, traditional sense of, of the word, of the, the genre, I guess, if it is a genre. but Well, there is a genre. Yeah. And, you know, Giddy Raff, who's the director of it and writer of it, perfected and reinvented that genre with Khatoufem, or Prisoners, which then became Homeland where, you know, he sort of created that TV version of the psychological spy thriller. And the challenge here was, how do we make this six-episode drama captivating and compelling when there's no violence in it? So he was the most successful spy of the 20th century, and yet he never, you know, never raised his fist, never killed anyone, never blew anything up. He was tempted to, apparently, at one point. Mm-hmm. He found one of the deputies of of the architects of the Final Solution had moved to Damascus, and he asked the Mossad whether he could, you know, engineer his demise. And uh, apparently he was told not to do it, so as not to jeopardize his mission. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so there's the physicality of how do you change from somebody who's working in a supermarket to a very wealthy Arab businessman. So I spent a a few weeks in Casablanca at very expensive restaurants. This is going to sound like an excuse, but very expensive (laughs) restaurants and hotel lobbies, basically observing a lot of different Arab businessmen from around the world. So a lot of them holiday in Casablanca. And, you know, trying to observe and make sort of uh, pick up something from one person here and something else from somebody there because... Ellie must have done that to a degree when he was in Damascus because he had to rely on his intelligence and his charm and his phenomenal acting skills Mm -hmm. to woo people, to woo generally men and women too, actually, but Mm -hmm. to have people trust him implicitly. So in a way, he was probably one of the greatest ever ever method actors. Mm-hmm. You know, he lived undercover in character for five years. Well, it's incredible that one scene at the border, I think it comes midway through the series, and he just runs into, you're like, it's so tense watching it. And you're like, what is going to happen? And then he asked to, for a toilet. Yes. And it's the first time I was like, oh, yeah. That he's human, of course. Like this is what's happening. The nerves are yes. are insane. It's like a razor's edge. Yeah, uh, it that must he's have living. been terrifying. I mean, 
that's why there were some scenes that I was surprised by. Obviously, I'm a comedian mm. and, you know, I've done some stuff in some other people's films, but this was the first time that I really kind of went for it. And, you know, when I'm in the scene, I'm in the scene. And there were some of the situations that Giddy had created where suddenly I found myself crying in the middle mm. of a scene because one scene, Ellie is forced to shoot a an Israeli civilian to prove that he's not, you know, that he's the real thing. And, you know, in the scene, you just, you're in that dilemma of, do I actually kill a civilian to keep my cover? Is this worth it or not? And, you know, I found myself crying like a young mm -hmm. child. Mm -hmm. But uh, so it's an interesting experience for me, mm -hmm. you know, making that departure. Well, a couple of themes uh, that I took away is about being over eager. Your your home base guy, your recruiter, uh, played brilliantly by Noah Emmerich. He is the one that brings you in. You're this uh, Ellie character, obviously, he was failed kind of along the way. He was interested in in espionage or being part of mm. the military in that in that capacity, but he didn't make the grade, and he gets his second chance and. It's it's thematic. It just kept coming back about an over eagerness, and is that what got him? Is that what ended up being his um, downfall? And how much did the Mossad have that on their hands? And how do you balance those two? I was fascinated by that uh, dilemma on all of the main characters, and just in the world today, when we think about the world we're living in, these sacrifices and these decisions are being made mm. in split seconds all the time while we're having this conversation. Mm. And then the other thing is. About about the women in this series. One of the most violent scenes that does not involve a gun is done by a woman. Yeah. That I thought was fascinating. Yes. And also that scene when they, the Mossad is discussing, you're not, the Ellie Cohn is not in it, but they're discussing the dangers. And a, one of the women agents that we've gotten to know, obviously, right, mm. that's that's in the home office, stands up and says, speaks basically truth to power. And the boss is like, who is that person? And the response is someone that should not be talking, <laughs> but she's right. Yeah. And it was just, that to me was really interesting about the, how you guys presented women in, in an era when no one ever talks about women. I thought that was really, really interesting. And obviously Ellie's wife, yes. too, of what she had to do and, and the lie that she had to pretend not to know mm. was a lie. The, all of it was really, it, it's it's really good and delicious. I mean, it's an interesting period in sort of gender history of, um, you know, Israel in the 60s. So... Golda Meir was one of the, I think she was the second female prime minister. She was um, in the early 70s. So you had, obviously, Israel was formed with this socialist egalitarian philosophy of the kibbutz and men and women are equal and we can both, uh, you know, everyone can do every job no matter what. Well, women the, were in the Israeli army in, way before they were in the American army. You always yes, heard about yes. that. So they, yeah. were, they were obliged yeah. to be in the... Yeah. But yet, it's still a kind of very macho culture there. Um, and those two, you know, you're in the Mossad where it's crucial that you make the right decision. So, uh, yes, there are these very, very powerful women in the show. And yes, it's a female Mossad agent who basically saves Ellie's life because he's not a great fighter. Mm -hmm. You know, and in the end, we did, I sort of learnt. 
a type of Krav Maga from the 50s mm -hmm. uh, that the Mossad were teaching at the time, which in the end we didn't actually include it in the show, but we didn't want him to be a Jason Bourne guy. We mm -hmm. wanted him to be a guy who through his charm and his intelligence and his memory and his dedication and actually his risk-taking achieves... Huge risk-taking. Yeah. And huge. not asked to take those risks. Yes. So the Mossad at the time expected him to go into Damascus. I mean, this was the time of where intelligence was mainly gathered by people. It was human, as they call it now, human intelligence. So he was meant to just be their ears on the ground and read newspapers and listen to the radio, you know, make some contacts. They never thought that he'd be so effective at befriending people who then became, you know, one of the guys that he befriends <laughs> becomes the prime minister. Mm -hmm. So Al Hafez and, you know, so it, it's actually his risk taking, you know, that's the different, those people are either geniuses or they're dead, you know, that each time he takes a risk, it could be the end of his mm -hmm. life. And also the head of the Mossad, and I don't know who the actor is, so forgive me. Oh, he's great. I've forgotten his name too. He's incredible. But he's he's apparently he gives, one of the kind of legendary Israeli actors. Right. And when he says the 18 years speech, which I know you'll probably remember when he talks yes. about why now, and it's about the risk for Ellie, you know, in Syria. And it's, there's debate about whether to send you back. And this, this dialogue, it's too soon. He's not ready. He's too eager. I'm worried. And his family, obviously, all these reasons. And he gives a speech about 18 years. We waited in Germany. We waited. Hmm. We were told nothing was going to happen. This guy would go away. The world would never let it happen and he's yeah. referring to the Holocaust and Hitler, obviously. And he said, and we waited and we cannot wait now. That gave me chills. That was really interesting because, yeah, I mean, think about it. So, you know, America and the world is still traumatized by the events of 9-11. So think about it, at that point in 61, um, it's 16 years after the realization by most Jews that two in every three Jews in Europe were murdered. So there is a sense of genuine fear that it might happen again, you know, and that this nascent state and, you know, we can argue about the creation and whatever, but there was a genuine fear that it might not continue to exist because it was 13 years old. Um, and so that's kind of what's driving this guy to risk his life. Because, you know, somebody joining the CIA now or the Mossad now, you could say, you know, what, those are different motivations from somebody at the time who actually thinks, okay, our country might not exist. You know, our people might not exist if I don't go out there and risk my life and lie to everyone I know. Mm -hmm. And live a dual life. Yeah, and live I mean, this dual life. And the spectrum is just, I mean, like you said, poor Sephardic, yes. like the, and then this Rolexes and so know, it's yeah, it's a really ballrooms. complex psychological mm -hmm. dilemma, and it's a guy who has fluctuating status. Mm -hmm. That when he's in an enemy country, he's treated with a great deal more respect than when he's in his own country. So he's a poor Sephardic or Arabic Jew in Israel, but. In, you know, in the enemy country, he's a millionaire businessman with unlimited funds who's, 
you know, respected by the most important people in the country and admired by women and theoretically the reported. The clothes are Italian. gorgeous. The, like, oh. Yes. We had two fantastic French uh, designers who, you know, researched the whole... Yeah. The whole period, they actually contacted. And you look great in a suit, I might add. Thank we you never very... get to see you. We're seeing you in your costumes and in characters yeah. and hours of prosthetics. We never, you look fucking awesome. See, I, that's very kind. My Linen t- and French <laughs> blue and waistcoats. And yeah, it's, it's I love it. It's just an advert for suits. Well, my, I come from <laughs> menswear, I come from haberdashery. Yeah. My dad oh, and right. my uncle had a, a couple of suit shops um, in London and Wales. So. Uh, They'd be very happy to hear that. Yeah, no, you look spectacular. Thank you very much. I'll take it. Yeah, 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 you do. Uh, <laughs> what do you hope audiences take away from this? Like, is is there something that you learn from from doing this that you hope audiences pick up? Well, it was a really incredible experience for me. So, I mean, I've never told this to anyone before, but I'm actually Jewish. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, yep. Yeah. And so it was interesting living in an Arab country for three months. I was in a hotel that was opposite uh, one of the biggest Wahhabi mosques in Casablanca. And so the most devout Wahhabi Muslims would go and holiday there and stay in the hotel. So it was me and Giddy were kind of the Jewish, you know, cast members. And then it was a mainly uh, Muslim cast. There were, there were actually Palestinian Christians. There were Algerian Muslims. There were Kuwaiti Palestinians. There were, um, you know, this whole sort of cornucopia of identity. And it was just great to have, you know, this is going to sound cheesy, but it was great to have people from completely different political perspectives coming together and saying, okay, let's try and make something amazing. This character, Veli, is a guy who's questioning his identity even if at times it's subconsciously and we live in an an age where identity politics is playing an increasingly increasingly crucial role and you know it's this question of who are you you know how important is identity what would we do to maintain our identity we're you know in a country that's divided now between liberals and republicans you know, and the way they see each other, again, this is going to sound cheesy, but are our differences really as great as they're depicted? Now, you went Shall to... Shall I start playing the violin? Or? No, no, no. I think uh, I like that. That's well put. Very articulate. You went to Cambridge. Is there any way, and would you even tell me the truth, how were you not recruited to be a spy at Cambridge? In, in Cambridge? Yeah. So, I mean, you're great with voices. You're <laughs> incredibly calm under pressure, we know. You morph into any person. You're seen adaptable. You're highly, you, you can read a situation. Like, come on, you'd be an amazing spy. And I'm not that's even what, being. That's what I thought. MI6, where are you? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's very, very insulting. There was not much recruitment for, I mean, the main people who came recruiting to Cambridge were management consultancy firms at the time. Mm where they were like, hey, do you want a job to come into a company and um, sack everybody, which was not that appealing at the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I would be ready to risk my life to do something. I mean, the, the risks I take on the show are more limited. You know, I'm trying to make a joke or prove a point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the worst situations we've ever had, 
you're risking getting arrested or possibly going to hospital. But, you know, I've always tried to veer away from anything where your actual life is at risk. Mm -hmm. But you have a fearlessness that's... Well, I I get terrified. I mean, I get... What scares you? Oh, I'm scared by performing. I'm scared of everything I do. But I'm able to over... This is this is what I realize is my problem, which is that <laughs> in the writer's room, I'm with, you know, my buddy or a few of us. We come up with an idea. I find it hilarious. You know, oh, I'm going to kiss this guy in a cage match surrounded by 2,000 rednecks and they're going to go crazy. And it's going to be a riot and they're going to try and storm the cage. <laughs> uh, hilarious. Great, great. End of the movie. And then it comes to the actual day and I don't want to do it. And... I'm trying to find ways to get out of the scene. And then obviously the director will go, you wrote this. You have to do it now. <laughs> or in the naked fight, I go, I'm not going to have my face underneath that, you know, fat guy's buttocks. And they're like, well, you wrote it. So I have a disconnect between coming up with the idea or being in a room where the idea uh, emerges and actually seeing myself do it. So when it comes down to the day, I'm always terrified, but out of a sense of obligation and guilt, I overcome my fear. <laughs> you make it work. You yeah. make it work. Yeah, but I'm terrified. I'm terrified. I read somewhere that you went to that famous clown school in Paris. Is yes. that true? Yeah. Or is that a rumor? That's true. So there's a famous clown school called Jacques Lecoq. It's called the Lecoq School that my wife went to, coincidentally. Uh, this school- Isla did. Yes, Isla went to clown school. Not... So it was coincidental. So that was. I wish the viewers could see my face right now. I didn't know that. <laughs> She's mouth is again. Love uh, yes. Yeah. So she went to Lecoq, the chicken, uh, named after Jack Lecoq, who was this great um, clown. And the main clown teacher there was a guy called Philip Golier. He then split off and set up his own school in London. It's now back in Paris. And yeah, I studied there for a year. Uh, a number of different styles of acting, but one of them was clowns. So I had to wear a red nose, as did my wife. When, um, and a specific red nose bought from a special shop in Paris. But yes, that was my original aim, was to become a successful clown and actually join. There was a theatre group called Theatre de Complicité. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the original aim when I left that school because that was the, um, that was the dream of any clown. Do you still think about it in, in your acting now and in the stuff that you do? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, firstly, I'm still in contact with uh, Golier. He's still the funniest, you know, guy I've ever met and, you know, one of the great teachers. People have gone from around the world mm-hmm. to see him. And he comes to all the premieres of all my movies, usually tells me whether they're good or bad before the reviews <laughs> work it out. And, uh, yes, I do... There's stuff that I learned there that I still try and put into mm-hmm. effect, you know. That, you know, I started clown there in this other style of humor called Buffon, which mm-hmm. is a comedy of the dispossessed. So it was supposedly in medieval Europe, you would have these Buffons who were these outcasts from society, heretic priests, those who were deformed. Um, et cetera, et cetera, who would live outside of the village. And then once a year they were allowed in for these kind of carnivals and they would put on these bouffant plays where they would mock those in authority. And it was a kind of vicious form of satire. 
Uh, it was quite nasty, actually. Mm. But it was a powerful tool for the dispossessed. Mm-hmm. Are there any of your characters you want to bring back or you miss? Yeah, I you miss them you all. Do. You know, yeah. I miss doing all of them, actually, because when, you, when you're in them, it's really good fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes it's terrifying, but it's, you know, it's fun. Oh, I, mean, I certainly can't bring back LA, that's for sure. Yeah, no, not LA, but um, all right. I We're at the end of great. our time. I could talk to you forever. You're no, no, no. great. You're you? supposed to say, come on, you're not supposed to say great. You're be like, really? Oh, oh, oh. really? Was I okay? Oh, <laughs> that, I mean, no, really? By. Can we not carry on? Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, so I'm going to ask you the questions I ask everybody. Okay, okay, no great. wrong answer, just whatever okay, comes okay. off the top of your head. What are you reading? What am I reading What's at the last moment? What's the last thing you read? Or- um, I'm actually reading some short stories by Isaac Bashevis Singer. Mm-hmm. Heard of him. There we go. What are you As eating? As everyone is at the moment. Yeah. What are you eating these days? What am I eating? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been eating some vegan burgers. I've uh, had Those some... Ba- I, there's, a very, there's a particular brand it? that people are yeah, I can't remember, obsessed with. Realistic the, Burger or something yeah. like that. And then I've been uh, eating some black cod. Mm, okay. Not to be and mispronounced. What are we listening to? Listening to uh, Anderson Pack's new album at the moment. And what was the last thing we watched, binge watched, or obsessed over? Um, I loved Fleabag, actually. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a revelation. She's brilliant mm-hmm. and bumped into her in England. So. It's Phoebe's world, and we're just living in it. Yeah, I mean, it was quite intimidating seeing it and going, oh, Jesus, she's so much better than me. But um, what can you do? Oh, it's great to see you, Sasha. All right, great to see it's you. Awesome. Thank you very much. Okay, all right. Thanks a lot. The Spy, streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Present Company is produced by Netflix and Gimlet Creative. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.